now we come to the last section, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. This is verses 5 through 19 of chapter 25. Verse 5, if brothers live together and one of them dies without having a son, the dead man's wife must not remarry someone outside the family. Instead, her late husband's brother must go to her, marry her, and perform the duty of her brother-in-law. And the first son, the one that bears him, continues the name of the dead brother, thus preventing his name from being blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to marry his brother's widow, then she, does n- she must go to the elders of the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to preserve his brother's name in Israel. He is unwilling to perform the duty of her brother-in-law to me. And the elders of the city must summon him and speak to him. If he persists, saying, I don't want to marry her, then the sister-in-law must approach him and view of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, and spit in his face. She will then respond, Thus may it be done to any man who does not maintain his brother's family line. His family name will be referred to in Israel as the family of one whose sandal was removed. It's a horrible insult. You're the one of the sandal has been removed. So the reality is, this is a leverate marriage. Use it on somebody next time. So this is a leverate marriage. We talked about this in Leviticus. A leverate marriage is if I am married and I die before I have children, my unmarried brother is required to marry my widowed wife in order to provide me children and continue my line and my descendants. Now here's what's interesting. God doesn't allow you to marry the wives of your relatives. It's forbidden in Leviticus. But he makes one exception, and that's when one of your relatives has no children. Now, this says something big to us Americans who do not understand lineage. I mean, I know we value kids and we want to have kids, but the idea of being descendants and being ancestors and continuing our name and our heritage, that is foreign to us. I mean, we kind of get it to a certain extent, but at the same time, we're like, but I don't get it. Why is it such a big deal? But what God is saying is, I don't allow you to marry the wife of one of your relatives when your relative dies, except if that relative has no children. Then you're required to marry her to provide children. This shows you how seriously God takes lineages and descendants. So a couple scenarios. So... If I die and I have no children and she marries off to my brother and she still can't have children, then the line's dead. If I have no brothers that are single, then there's nobody for her to be married off and the line is dead. The reality of what God's saying is that you must do everything in your power to continue the line. There's nothing you can do about barrenness. There's nothing you can do about people already being married. But if there is the ability for you to continue the line, then you must do it. Now, why is this coveting? Because the brother-in-law might, or the brother might be tempted to not do the leveret marriage so that he gets all the inheritance. And that's coveting. And in fact, that's what we're told. In chapter 38 of Genesis, Judah has three sons, And the first son is married to Tamar. And his name is Onan. And Onan is an evil man and God kills him. So he marries, sorry, it's Ur. 
and Ur is an evil man, and he's killed by God, and then she's given to Onan. But Onan refuses to impregnate her because he wants his brother and his inheritance, and God kills him for it. That's serious. So the reality is what he's saying is then if you are capable and willing and you refuse to, then you're to take your sin off and throw it in their face and saying you won't do this. And everybody in the community will know you as the man of the removed sandal. Yeah, the unsandaled person. Now why? Why is it an insult? Feet are considered incredibly disgraceful in Eastern cultures. Burma, also known as Myanmar, in that culture, if you like, you know how you cross your legs when you're just sitting in the living room? If you cross your legs and your foot points towards somebody in the room, that's worse than flicking them off in our culture. Like showing your feet, feet are incredibly disgraceful. This is why even when the, the, the Second Testament, who washed the feet of people? The lowest of lowest of lowest slaves. And this is why the people horrify the disciples when Jesus gets down and does it. The king of the universe did the most, the closest thing we get to this is taking care of somebody's feces while they're laying in bed and um, messing themselves in bed and, try, and taking care of them. That's just, it's hard. That's a difficult thing to do. And so this is what Jesus is doing. Feet are disgraceful. Do you remember when Bush was in the news and he was, I forget what he was talking about, but nobody remembers what he's talking about. What they remember was the Arab guy who what? Threw his shoe at him. And most Americans were like, what? that's so silly. And like it's some college kid pranking the president. But he was from the East. In the East, that was the same thing as somebody taking their feces and throwing it at the president. That's basically what he was doing. Everybody in the East would have interpreted like that. That shows you how much he hated Bush. That's what this means in this culture. And so what God is saying is, take the sandal off and throw it at him. Because he was unwilling to continue the name and the line of his brother. That plays a huge role in the book of Ruth. But the book of Ruth is complicated. I mean, it's a nice love story, but it's way more complicated than that. And what Boaz is doing in the fourth chapter is like, it's genius, but it's complicated. So you'll just have to wait for that. That's, don't worry, that's coming up. That's in the fall. Yes? So if, if she has a son, so it carries a dead brother's name. So then if she has another son, that's then the... That goes then to the brother that married her. Yes. Very good. I have to admit, there's a part of me who's like, but they're technically both your brother's sons, <laughs> biologically. Isn't he still getting all the inheritance? And that's the one I am just have to say, I've don't have any idea why that works because I'm not part of that culture. There's just something been seriously lost in translation from culture to culture. That seems to make total sense. So then he goes on to verse 11. If two men get into a hand-to-hand -hand fight and the wife of the one of them gets involved to help her husband against the attacker, she reaches out her hand and grabs the gentles, then the one must cut off her hand and do not pity her. Like, okay... <laughs> 
So the husband is in a fight with somebody else, and she decides, I may not be strong enough to attack this guy, but the greatest weakness that the guy has is the groin, so I'm going after the groin, and I'm just going to crush it, and then my husband will be free. Now, it's a great heart, defend the husband, protect him, but God says her hand must be cut off now. This is the only time that we see any kind of dismemberment in the entire Bible. Why is God so harsh? that's his ability to reproduce. And she just murdered his line. That's the implication. She didn't go to attack the man and to stop the man. She went after his children and murdered his children. That's the implication. This is something that we've forgotten today in America. When you kill somebody, you're not just killing them. You're continuing killing their line. You're killing all the potential children that they could have. Now, granted, if they're like 90 years old and all that kind of stuff, that might be true. But many people, most people are murdered or young. And we have to remember that murder is not just murder. Murder is murder of the line. And if God takes this so seriously that you're to have like crap thrown in your face, basically, publicly, if you refuse to carry into your brother's line on, and that he's killing Onan for refusing to continue the line on, then killing somebody and cutting their line off is serious. And this is exactly why David loses his son to Bathsheba. Because when David murdered Uriah, Uriah and Bathsheba had not had kids yet. So he wasn't just wiping Uriah out, he was wiping Uriah's complete, his entire line out. He not only refused, like I said, if God thinks of you this way, if you refuse to continue to lie on, what does he think of you when you murder an entire line? And so God says, because you killed the line of Uriah, your line through this child is going to die too. And yeah, I know that's a complicated passage to emotionally deal with, that God allows a son, an innocent child to die. But when you understand the greater context of what's going on, it sheds a little bit more light on what's going on here. That was the main reason for that child to die, was that, because if you look at all the judgments, God says, because you did this, you will live, but because you do this, violence will now enter your house for the rest of your life. Why? Because David brought violence to the house of Uriah. Then David says, just as you took his wife, I will take your wives from you. Why? Because he did that. And then the child is the same way. So all three punishments match up completely what David did to Uriah. And so the death of the child is not just like a cruel God killing a child. It's all in total line with what David did to Uriah. This is how serious God takes lineages. Now the most obvious answer is the line of Christ. But remember, there's only one tribe that's going to produce Christ and only one specific family. Yet he still takes it serious in every other tribe and every other family. This is important to him. Being an ancestor is incredibly important to God. And I really think that it would behoove us as a modern-day church to start thinking of ourselves as ancestors. That we really need to get this idea of ancestor, lineage, and lines... And I'm speaking to myself, too, because this is foreign to me. But I really think that we've lost something biblically by not thinking of ourselves as ancestors. Now he basically goes into 
weights and basically says you're not allowed to cheat the weights and trade and all that kind of stuff. Why? Because that's coveting. You're coveting more. And rather than just setting a, a price and sticking to it, you're cheating that person by coveting more. So verse 17, Remember that the Amalekites did to you on the way of Egypt, how they met you along the way and cut off your stragglers in the rear of the march. And when you were exhausted and tired, they were unafraid of God. So when Yahweh your God gives you the relief from all your enemies who surround you in the land, is giving you as inheritance, you must wipe out the memory of the Amalekites from heaven. Do not forget. So basically what God is saying is, they're entering Israel. They're going to wipe out all the enemies of God in Israel. And once they secure the land, it's going to be very easy to say, we now have done what God wants us to do. We have the land. But God, remember, the Amalekites weren't originally on the list of destruction. But because of what they did to them in Egypt, God put them on the list of destruction. But the Amalekites are south of the promised land. They're outside the promised land. So here's what he's saying. If this is the promised land, and the Amalekites are outside of the promised land, and they've conquered the promised land, they've done everything God has commanded them, they've taken the land, they're at peace, they've gained their inheritance. It is very tempting to covet the peace and the thing that you have now and not want to go outside the land and do extra things. And what God is saying is, you still have to do that. Do not covet the peace and the land and the blessing so much that you're unwilling to leave the land of blessing to obey God. Basically, you're not allowed to be lazy to the point of disobedience. You're not allowed to covet vacations and relaxation and rest. Now, God, did he forbid resting? No, he gave them the land so that they could rest. But you're not allowed to covet it to the point that you're no longer obedient. You're no longer obedient. So that is the end of all the laws. Makes all perfect sense now, right? Let's just go apply it. This is something that we chew on. Remember, we're no longer under this legally. You can wear wool and linen, although I don't really recommend it. But the reality is we're just supposed to look at the principles and apply them to our lives today. And that's where it takes much prayer, much reading, and much discussion in the body of Christ. I know to some this is like really cool and interesting. To others it was tedious. To most of us it was probably tedious but also interesting but the reality is this is where we have to spend time because Deuteronomy is the only book in the entire Bible that's considered the heart of God. Now, I know technically every book is the heart of God, but this is where the heart of God really comes out. We're given more commentary on what God thinks than any other book. And so what God is saying is this is what we're to meditate on. And so there is something to maybe taking a commandment, a section, and getting together as a group of believers reading through it and praying and saying, I know we're not under the law. We're not going to legalistically put anybody into this. But the reality is the principles, the idea, the heart of God has not changed. So what does it look like to execute this heart of God in the first commandment in our culture today? Discuss and pray. Now, I know that nobody really wants to sign up for that small group. But I do think that there is something there to doing something like that because this is also the book that Jesus quoted from more than any other book. 
He quoted from Deuteronomy throughout his ministry more than any other book of the Bible. This is the heart of God. So that brings us to chapter 26, verse 1. Now they confirm the covenant. So remember, the first generation came out of Egypt. Three weeks later, they were at Mount Sinai. God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments. They said, hey, we're going to do this covenant. We're on board. And then they go in the wilderness. Now that generation's completely died off, just a couple months ago is when the last of the generation's gone. And one of the things that God commanded in the book of Exodus is that every generation was to renew the covenant. Every generation was to go through what they did at Mount Sinai. So every generation was to have the law read to them. They were to agree to obey it. They were to sacrifice an animal, sprinkle it on the altar, which was God, sprinkle it on the people, which is them, and bind them together. Every generation. And so now this is the new generation. They've just been given a, a new commentary on how to apply the law in the promised land. And now it's time for them to say, yes, we will do this. So when you, verse 26, sorry, chapter 26, verse 1, when you enter the land that the Yahweh your God is giving you as an inheritance and you occupy it and live in it, you must take the first of all the ground's produce you harvest from the land of Yahweh your God is giving you and place it in a basket and go to the place where he chooses to locate his name. You must go to the priest and offer at that time and say to him, I declare today to Yahweh your God that I have come into the land and that Yahweh promised our answers to give us. Now remember back in Leviticus, we went through all the seven festivals of God. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, feast of weeks were the first four, and then tabernacles, trumpets, and day of atonement. They've been doing all the festivals except for one, first fruits. And the reason they haven't done first fruits is because God told them not to do first fruits. Because first fruits is when you took the first fruits of your harvest and you gave it to God, thanking him for the harvest and for being in the land. But you can't do that if you have no land and you have no harvest. So God has exempted them from that for the last 40 years. Now what God is saying is, I am bringing you to the land. And the first thing that you're to do is do first fruits. Now, what's interesting is when they enter the land, within a couple of days of entering the land, it will be Passover. And first fruits is the Sunday after Passover. So they're literally going to get into the land within a week of Passover, or first fruits. And so God is saying, you're to take food and grain. Because you're going to conquer some cities and you're going to have the grain from those cities. And you're to offer it to God. And you're to start doing this. Why? Because you now have the land that God promised you. So you need to start celebrating that. Verse 12. When you finish tithing all your income in the third year, the year of tithing, you must give it to the Levites and the resident foreigners and the orphans and the widows so that they may eat it to their satisfaction in your villages. Then you shall say before Yahweh your God, I have removed the sacred offerings from my house and given it to the Levites. So every three years, they were to tithe an extra tithe to the Levites. So every three years, they paid an extra tithe to the Levites to help take care of them. And that was to fund the, the, the repair of the tabernacle. It was to fund the Levites and their life whatever needed to be done every three years. So they're required to tithe all the time. And the third year, there was an extra tithe that they're supposed to give. And then we come to the closing narrative interlude. 
Today, Yahweh your God, verse 16, is commanding you to keep these statues and ordinances, something you must do with all your heart and soul. That's a repeat of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Today you have declared to Yahweh to be your God and that you will walk in his ways, keep his statutes, commandments, and ordinances, and obey him. And today Yahweh has declared to you to be a special people, as he already promised to you, that you may keep all of his commandments, and then he will elevate you above all the nations he has made you and will receive praise and fame and honor, and you will be a people holy to Yahweh your God, as he has said. So then he repeats Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, where God says, If you obey me, then I will make you my special possession, my royal priesthood, and my holy nation. He now says, So you have just now agreed to obey all these laws, and he is now going to make you his special people and his holy nation. 